Hey there, perfect peeps. Have you ever wanted to come on to a podcast and talk about what you've been working on? Or do you have a product to show off? We would love to have you on perfect.dev. Please reach out. You can find us on codingcat.dev or just reach out to me personally, alex at codingcat.dev. I'm really looking forward to some new stories, uh, whether it's in Flutter, in Vue, in Angular, or if you just have a new product that you've created, I'd love to hear about it. Anything in, in the web development space is wonderful, but if you have a mobile app, uh, a Flutter app, come say hello. Don't be afraid. We'd love to have you on. Thanks so much. Welcome back, perfect peeps, to perfect.dev. Today, we are talking all about safe, and it is in the terms of scrum question mark is scrum on steroids that safe i don't know we're gonna break it all down we have some special guests straight from ost elizabeth wilson and brett fitzgerald do you guys want to introduce yourself go ahead elizabeth you can go first all right yes i'm elizabeth wilson i have been a lead agile coach at ost for the last several years i've worked with a variety of large to small organizations where we've seen the benefits of applying safe and a majority of the practices so we're looking forward to discussing that with you today awesome, awesome. thanks for coming on mm -hmm. brett yeah i'm brett fitzgerald i'm an agile coach and a team lead at ost uh, I came up kind of through the software development background and then into the Scrum world and then uh, up into the Scaled Agile framework. So that's that's what got me here today. Very cool. So I'm going to throw this uh, slide up for those who are watching on the, uh, the YouTubes or the Twitches of the world. This is what we're talking about today, this crazy maze of safe. And yeah, this is a lot to take in. I don't expect anyone to actually look at it. But we're going to break down each part of SAFE and kind of what it is. And I think if I've completely lost our viewers at this point, um, we need to start off with what is Agile? Brett, can you break that down for us? Yeah. So Agile in general, there's a lot of like you ask 10 different people what Agile is and they'll give you 10 different answers. But um, at its core, uh, Agile is the process of taking the work that we're doing and focusing on value delivery. And making sure that all of our, our processes and systems are optimized for that value delivery. Uh, and then at routine checkpoints, we kind of look back and we say, what's been working well? What can we improve on? So we have that continuous improvement element in there as well. Uh, so it's less about like forecasting and making sure we have budgets set up up front and long-term planning. And it's saying incrementally, let's deliver something as quick as we can, see how it's working, and then come back and see, do we need to adjust the direction that we're headed? Uh, and then continue development from there. It's kind of based on the premise that the ideal product emerges. It's not designed up front. Yeah, and you guys always call me out when I say we're we're doing uh, project management, and what we're actually doing is product management. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of break away from that project mentality of defining scope rigidly up front, and then gathering a group of people around that scope and then doing that work, delivering that work at the end and then disbanding that team. We want to focus yep. on kind of having a product that we're supporting and long, long live teams. So and then projects tend to have like a hard end date where a product has this length of life that you want to continue to fuel until you no longer see the value in fueling it. And then to take that a step further and people might have heard this term more often is, is Scrum. Um, can you break down like what Scrum is and what that really means to a product? 
Yeah, it's very similar to Agile, really, right? It has like the three pillars around um, transparency, inspection, adaption. And it's really about having that iterative cycle, bringing things down into the two-week sprints or maybe three-week sprints, depending on how that team functions. Um, But continuing to reflect and improve upon your process, but always delivering a bit of value at the end of that segment. Cool. So why are... Maybe I should ask it differently. Um, do typically people get into Scrum or Agile because they're trying to move faster or is it because like everyone's doing it? Why don't we do it? Why do people actually start using Scrum? Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, so one of the main, main reasons you kind of hit on is we want to deliver product quicker. And so enabling a team to say, we're not just focused on delivery of the value itself, but we can also open up the scope of their responsibility to say the way that we deliver value is also in our purview. So um, that's how we get into the whole DevOps culture and saying it's not just about writing code and then delivering that code, but we can say, all right, what do we do need to do to make that delivery process faster? And so we can start working on our pipeline. So that speed of delivery uh, is important, but also it just generally leads to more engaged employees if you're looking at it from like a management standpoint because it gives autonomy to the team. And so the team gets to make the decisions around the work because they're closest to the work. So they're the most knowledgeable. And so when you give a team a problem, instead of like scope and definition and requirements, you give them a problem to solve. It's usually more engaging uh, for a team to say, all right, this is how we want to solve the problem. And then they move forward with that. So usually it's more engaging from a work standpoint as well. And then the the typical items I've seen kind of in that scrum, like, we talked two week cycle or three week cycle. Um, there's a lot of parts and pieces to to Scrum itself, but um, a, a question that comes up often is the daily stand up. Like, is that a thing that's really required? Is that is that meant to bring the team together? Is it a status update? Can you explain like what that daily stand up really entails and is used for? Yeah. So the daily stand up, um, like you said, it's pretty contentious because it seems like having a meeting every day. Uh, can get a little tedious. And so, excuse me. So the Scrum Guide originally uh, described the daily stand-up as answering three questions. Everybody goes in a circle and they say, what did you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And do you have any blockers that we need to escalate? Um, But the new edition of the Scrum Guide that came out uh, at the end of 2020, they kind of went back on that a little bit and they kind of recognized some of the trends that are happening in the marketplace and saying, those questions can get a little stale and routine. And so now the goal of that standup is to rally around the work that we're doing. We're doing two or three week sprints and we have a goal for that time period. And so now our daily standup is really our team coming together saying, all right, how are we doing like accomplishing that goal? And what can we be doing today to get us closer to that accomplishment? So it's really almost like a mini planning session and it only lasts 15 minutes. And then a lot of teams see this as like the kickoff to the day. So you can come in and check your email, do all your stuff, you know, read your blogs and stuff like that. And then like we figure out what are we going to do today? And then we go after it until, until it's time to home. Yeah. And I guess, um, Wilson, when we, we start to talk about that a little bit um, and we talk about like sprint planning, how does, how does sprint plan? Cause it sounds like when, when Brett's describing like, Oh, you just figure out that day and start doing it. It sounds like a more, pep rally. It, right? Like <laughs> what, what is the sprint planning piece to that versus, you know, when we were saying the old waterfall type of world, we just, thought we could figure everything out at one time. What's that look like? What's sprint planning? Well, just to kind of comment on Brittany, she did say like a pep rally for the daily stand up. And that's exactly it. There's a lot of 
necessary pressure, good pressure on the scrum master to make those meetings effective so people don't dry out from attending them. Like there's a purpose behind them, but the scrum master really has to have that rallying card. Sprint planning is crucial because again, it allows you to take the items from your backlog that you've previously groomed and actually plan them out for two weeks with a goal that you're actually going to deliver something into production at the end of this. Ideally, that's not always how every team has it set up, but ideally you should be able to deliver some value. And what that does is it builds confidence. The more often that you can actually showcase the value that your team can deliver, the more confidence you're going to build within the organization and even within that team. Very cool. And then as we kind of make it through that and you bring in QA, and now I, now I need to pause a second and say, Brittany, am I boring you with our, our daily standups? Oh, no. <laughs> Not at all. No comment. Yeah. Okay. I, no, I think, I think they're actually beneficial. And I was going to say that I think that it adds like to the user flow too. Like you get a little bit of insight into the flow of your product and how each piece like works and connects together. And I think it helps a lot. Yeah. And then um, when we start to like get through testing and, and that sort of kind of cyclical items that we, we do through the sprint planning cycle, um, can you, Brett, talk about like acceptance criteria and what that actually means coming through that? Yeah. So from the, the sense of Scrum, we talk about user stories first. So if you want to talk about acceptance criteria, we kind of talk about the user stories first and saying, um, we're defining our work as the way that our users engage with our system. So from a development standpoint, I'm not just trying to build a technical feature. I'm trying to build an experience that my users are going to go through when they use our product. And so when I get myself into that mindset, it gives me that freedom to kind of then focus on the implementation the way that I think makes sense to me and the rest of the team. So the user stories are just very simple sentences that would say, as a you know customer who's checking out, I want to apply a discount code to my cart so that I can, you know, get relevant discounts or something like that. So that's the format. As a user, I want to whatever, so that whatever. So when I have that mindset, there's still some kind of questionable areas where um, maybe as a developer, I have some questions and we want to ask the business, okay, so where do these product codes come from? Like, how are we checking these against existing codes? Can I add multiple products? So there's some questions that have business implications. And so those acceptance criteria kind of help further define that story. So we might ask our product owner, so the person who's kind of representing the users uh, and the business, can I add multiple uh, checkout like coupon codes to my cart? And they might come back and say, yeah, we can have stackable coupon codes. And so that goes into my implementation of that. And so the acceptance criteria further defines uh, the, the work that's being done. And then that gives the product owner the ability to go through and say, as long as these acceptance criteria have been met and the needs of the customer have been met, then this story can be accepted as being completed. And we, we can say that value has been delivered. And what happens when a, the development side of that story says, we, we hit everything you asked for, that acceptance criteria was met, and your customer, your product owner is saying, no. It's not like, how do you work through that, that conflict resolution? Yeah, it's, it's definitely time for like a crucial conversation yeah. in that moment and saying like, we did the things that we were asked for. So why isn't this accepted? And so uh, what we'd usually like to see is if we got all the work in that story done and completed and delivered, let's call that story done. Now we can be, this is the pivot part of being agile and saying we delivered the value and maybe it's not what we were expecting at the end, or maybe it's not having the impact. 
So let's make another story to follow up and pivot and say, okay, so hypothetically, we did deliver all these uh, stackable coupon codes. And now it turns out that people are actually buying products and we owe them money because somehow they're adding 50 different coupons to this. Okay, let's, let's pivot away from that. And so two stacked, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, how do we handle that? So we met the criteria, but the product owner is saying like, no, that's not actually what we want. So let's create another story. Uh, it goes into the backlog. It gets prioritized probably pretty high if we're bleeding money from our shopping cart. Um, and then we, we work on that. And so we're still moving forward. We didn't throw away our old work. Uh, we went in a direction. We had to alter that a little bit. And then we keep going from there. Uh, very cool. And it, with that story specifically, would there be any point in time where you actually said, okay, our, our work's complete, that story's complete, the features in production, and we're losing money. Is, is there another story that has to occur to say, back all that out? Or what does that look like if uh, there's some sort of like major bug or something that comes in? Yeah. So this is, you're getting more into like sort of the DevOps uh, implementations of, of the agile space. And so um, there's a bunch of different ways like that you want to think about that. And we want to, when we're talking about DevOps, we want to be able to either fix forward very quickly or be able to roll back very quickly. So ideally we fix forward and we say, you know, in a, in a couple of hours max, can we get a fix out there? If not, then we'll have other options, hopefully built into our pipeline. Like we could have a feature flag that we can just toggle off real quick and just disable the coupon codes for now. And so we want to we be proactive in how we build those things um, so that we can toggle things on and off just for that exact reason. Uh, or, you know, you might be in some markets where you don't, there are no coupon codes and it's just annoying to your customer to be like, oh, there's a, there's a field for coupon codes. So some markets might have that shut off. So Cool. No, this is great. So like that was a great overview of Agile and Scrum. And I think Brittany and I kind of loosely work off of that for Coding Cat. Um, at OST, we, we definitely utilize this. But um, Wilson, can you talk about like that all covered Scrum very well, but now we're talking like safest Scrum on steroids, right? Like the title <laughs> that you kind of came up with when, in our pre-meeting. What does that mean? Like what is safe and, you know, why do we start using it? So when do you flip the switch, right? Yeah. Why is it? Why do you have to start considering safe? So when you have multiple agile teams that are working together, um, some of those are going to be working towards the same value. Others are going to be working on different value streams. And as this grows, you're going to start to lose visibility across these teams and have a lack of ability to plan for their backlogs. And you need to be able to do that at the program level, maybe even at the enterprise level. So. And even if I take a step back, you can apply principles of safe, even if you only have a couple teams. We do that today as we're starting to introduce uh, some of our clients into this methodology or this framework, trying to see if it's going to be a good fit for the growth that we see that they have potential for. And it, that's key because it gives you the right guardrails in place. It gives leadership comfort, especially if they're moving out of waterfall. And it gives them proper planning meetings built out in a cadence so that they know that it's just not a flash in the pan, that there is a set plan and repeatability to this that's gonna gain them more visibility to the work that they're working towards. So more specifically, these teams that are tied to the same value stream, same value delivered, they're gonna have these planning sessions over two days called product increment planning sessions. And these are actually gonna allow you to plan work over 10 to 12 weeks and you're going to be able to identify risks and dependencies across these teams. That's visibility that typically is found too late. 
like maybe days, maybe short weeks before they stumble upon them. But in this session, it allows them to actually have several weeks visibility into that so they can pivot. Do we need to throw that feature out? Do we need to modify how we would address it? Those conversations, even though are still painful, they're better to have earlier than later. Mm-hmm. And that's um, feedback that we received from a marketing team at a company that was um, building connected products. There was always this friction between marketing and development and their inability to build effectively plan their marketing efforts because they couldn't rely on the development delivery dates. Having these sessions in place gave them the visibility to pivot early enough if necessary so they could properly plan on the marketing end. And they said, yeah, I still don't like having these conversations about impacts, but I sure do like them way more in advance so I can make proper decisions in my day-to-day. So just giving them that like visibility into the, the actual pipeline or the process of work, it, it was enough so that they felt more comfortable or could like pull things off of their marketing schedule. And it allows the entire business to almost essentially get on the same page. Is that kind of the idea behind it? Exactly. Yeah, we definitely have seen a lot of positive benefits to the relationships from the business yeah. to IT side going through this process. So the, the other part of PI planning, it, it so... We kind of talked about, we're we're building up a little bit here. So we talked about sprint planning, and now we talked about PI planning. That PI planning, I've I've seen most of the time happens once per quarter. What is the usual, like, strategy behind that, or how often are you doing PI planning? Once a quarter is about right. There's some organizations that do it once every 10 weeks. So a little bit more frequently, they usually get five planning sessions in a year doing it that way. But others have found a good rhythm tying it to their quarter, because that's also when there's budget renewals or resource refreshing that can take place in regards to their contractors that they work with. So quarterly tends to be a good way for them to plan out their year. Cool. Um, so the, the other piece to save is I've heard, uh, and it's kind of because of this PI planning, is does safe slow a project down? And the reason I've heard that is PI planning just took two days out of all those quarters. So at least eight days are kind of gone, right? You just slowed my entire my entire year down, right? So, how do you kind of you know conflict? It's a conflicting view. Right. How do you get through that and say no, no, no? You just saved a lot of time because we're in this session together, knowing things. What does that look like? If you could take a look at everyone's calendar pre-PI, before they adopted Safe, and added up all the hours of meetings that they were in, especially last minute meetings that were pulled together because things were creeping up that they weren't expecting, it definitely surpasses the amount of time that we collaborated for two straight days, the amount of work that we've gone through. And um, especially because you're doing such a large chunk of it and you're pulling so many people together, that now the business and IT are on the same page on the same day. There's no catch up. There's no gap in communication. Everybody is up to speed and can react more intelligently as different things that start to impact the work that's ahead of them. Yeah, every time I like the visual I start to use is kids using like the cup and the string talking to each other and something gets lost in there. And if you can just eliminate all that and get together one time, like it's so much better. So much better. Um, So let's see here. So. We talked a little bit about what SAFE was. We, we talked about some of the benefits, but when when does a company kind of decide to, to make that switch? So like Brittany and I, are, it's a two-person team at Code & Cat. Should we adopt SAFE tomorrow? What does that look like? 
That's a good question. Um, when do you when do you throw that switch? Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of different factors that can go into that. So if you're two people, um, I would say you're probably not ready to go full safe yet. You probably have pretty good alignment between your business and your execution there. So uh, so two people, I wouldn't say that uh, you're ready for safe. Like if you have a single development team, um, there might be some elements you can pull out of the safe framework that might be beneficial, but I wouldn't say it's like, oh, it's time to like pull the trigger and do two-day PI planning sessions and things like that. Uh, kind of the triggers that we look for, um, one of them is as your team starts scaling out, in, in Agile, we prize team autonomy um, pretty highly and saying we give the team a problem, we let them figure out how to solve it. As you have multiple teams um, working completely autonomously, uh, as your as your enterprise scales out, um, you're going to start stepping on each other's toes. And we're talking about like shared infrastructure, and one team might have a way of implementing that. It's completely different from another team. So we do need to generate some alignment between our teams there. Uh, also, the larger that our teams get, our team of teams gets, and the larger the business side gets, uh, to, to Elizabeth's point earlier, it's hard to make sure that we're getting the right information communicated consistently to each of the teams. And so... We need to make sure that our team's voices are being heard on the business and the business voice is being heard on the team. So when we start to feel that tension and realizing there's some disconnects, that's a good time to start thinking, all right, let's start looking at how do we solve this problem? And that's where safe usually comes up in that conversation. It's, it's building alignment, not only just between the teams, but also between the business and the teams. And that's focused on that two-day event where we say, let's get everybody together, we're all on the same page, we're all moving in the same direction. And then once we have that common ground established, then we say, all right, teams, now we, we, it's not like we're taking your autonomy from you for two days and then giving it back. There's a lot of autonomy within those two days as well. But that's where we kind of like let them do their thing and then make sure that we're seeing value being delivered. And if it's not, figure out, all right, what, what are we missing? So yeah. those are kind of the key questions that we're asking as we go along. So there, there's an aspect there where we kind of, it feels like a, a size item comes into play. Like your business has grown to X amount and we have many teams. Um, however, if I look at it from like an OSP perspective, where we're kind of more of the consulting um, element of this, can we actually use SAFE at OST as a, as that consulting realm where we have multiple business entities, multiple clients across multiple teams. Is that still an effective approach? Could we use that? Are we using that? Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, and I'll speak generically, not just for OST. That's what I'm looking for. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, so I, there's still, like, it's still a business to run. We still have internal projects as well. So the value that we're delivering to our clients um, you can look at that in one scope, and then the, the value that we're creating as a business, are we operating more efficiently? Are we improving our own processes? Uh, are we aligned? Um, are, is the leadership aligned? Is marketing aligned? Is, finance, is everybody in alignment? And there's always opportunities there um, to generate more alignment and uh, to be more productive. So we, we're a business by ourselves. Um, the fact that we do consulting work is sort of, from a safe standpoint, it doesn't really matter the, the product that we're delivering. It's the alignment between the business and the teams that are doing the product, doing the delivery of those products. So, uh, I think there's absolutely opportunity that we could we could lean into there, um, but also from the way that we do handle projects, I think we could also benefit from that as well. We have several uh, projects that run, uh, you know, multiple years, and so those could benefit from having those planning sessions and getting under that same cadence and getting that same alignment. So, I think there's opportunities at several different levels to 
pull from the safe toolbox that we could improve our processes and systems. I think, Wilson, you touched on this a little bit, but how do we go about, um, you know, bringing in someone as such as yourself, like into a company to say, you know, I, I think we're ready for safe and I think it's going to be a f- good fit, but what assessment takes place there? Like if you're called in and, and really to diagnose if they're ready for safe. You're right. It's an assessment. We go in for two, four, maybe even six weeks, depending on the size of the organization and the amount of uh, individuals that would be important for us to interview. And it is much of an observation as it is a two-way conversation back and forth um, for, from various levels within the team. Um, anybody from a developer, QA, manager, analyst, VP, director, uh, we want to interview all of them because they all have a different perspective on what's working and what's not working. And unfortunately, some individuals don't want to share that information. They're more apt to say in a group setting, everything's peachy or everything's fine or just want to focus on this. But until you can get them one-on-one and allow them to be comfortable and share some of those pain points, then we can take a step back from an outside perspective because we're not weighed down by any politics. We are not, our view is not changed by any other things that have been happening within the organization. So we can provide a good perspective on um, what aspects maybe some, maybe all of SAFE could be of benefit to them. And even just monitoring their ceremonies, like attend their daily stand-up sprint planning, um, retrospective, and a lot of that is very telling because some of those events they might not even have or run at that point, or it's just the function of how that Scrum Master is helping facilitate. Maybe there's a modification there. And I think one thing you'll learn too in this is a, a lot of companies will assume that all project managers make great scrum masters. All business analysts make great product owners, but it's never that easy. Yeah. It's really about the individual and the characteristics that they have to fill that role. You know, as, as you were saying that, we, we talk a lot about, you know, how developers are, and especially in 2020, as far as that, you know, nervousness to talk and, and things like that. We, we call them lurkers out on our Discord channels. Um, just, you know, they want to listen, but they're yeah. not really ready to interact. Um, throughout 2020, have, have you kind of changed some of that process? Are you sending out like more forms because you can't just sit in a meeting room? Or what, is, what does that look like if they're unwilling to share or not, not quite ready yet? I will say that it's been very uh, surprising in 2020 how adaptable going to video conferencing has been. I was extremely nervous going into my first PI planning virtually. Like I didn't know what was going to hold because we preach that we need to be in person for those two full days and we need the hands at the table, right? Like we need people working and making eye contact. And it was great. It was like this, it was smooth. And the reason why is it gave everybody the same opportunity to participate. Usually nine times out of 10, you have somebody that's co-located somebody somewhere else, maybe a different time zone, maybe not, but either way, somebody is dialing into that meeting and it's painful for them. Now it's not. Everybody's on the same playing field in it. Um, It was a game changer, honestly. So to answer your question directly, it's been a lot easier than anticipated. Is it, um, are there weird requirements, not weird, but are there specific requirements like you have to have your camera on now or anything like that coming into those sessions or that's kind of, you feel it out and see how it goes? It's definitely highly advisable is how we put it to have your camera on, but we understand if somebody needs to turn it off for a period of time. 
Yeah, well said. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, the flip side of that, uh, a company has brought you in and they think they're a great fit and you find out this really isn't going to work for you. What does that kind of conversation look like and how does that go? Yeah, sometimes it's just that honest conversation of saying like, hey, this either it's a result of the assessment, um, which frequently... I, that, that hasn't been the case. If we're going through the assessment, there's some value that we can provide. And when we talk about implementing SAFE, like you brought up that big picture at the beginning uh, of, our, of our conversation. And even that, there's an even bigger picture. Like that was just one subset of the big picture. Oh, no. Yeah, it, it's, it can get crazy. And so I recently had a conversation with a small, it was basically a one-team development shop. And they, they wanted to talk about like, well, what's SAFE? Does this make sense for us? And I mean, the answer is just no, safe doesn't make sense. There are elements of safe. Um, like if you wanted to pick one thing and say, this is the one thing we want to do, I'd say in this particular case for this uh, potential client, go with Scrum. Scrum's going to make sense for your single team. But you can also start with like the team level elements of safe and say, let's if we're, if we're looking at growth as a target, uh, if we think we're going to be scaling up in the future, why wouldn't we start with like the way safe handles a team? Uh, even though we don't have all the connection points to other teams and we don't have like misalignment between the business because, you know, our CEO sits two desks down from me or whatever. Um, if you're going to grow, why not set that foundation early? So even if we're not doing that full big picture safe, uh, there's like that bottom row of team level events and it looks very similar to scrum. There's some minor differences between the team level safe, uh, and scrum. But if we start off on that page, then as we, as we build our book, then, you know, we've got that continuity between the, the whole thing. So, so in those scenarios, like they're still batching up their work, they're making the user stories and they're, they're working through Scrum, but maybe they add on like the, the program increment part of that and they do that planning. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like that's what you would offer back to them as why don't you start here? And then if, you know, you grow and need a, another team, like, you know, Netflix kept growing and growing and growing, it, it just kind of fit into that pattern at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's definitely one way to approach it is, but a lot of it is custom tailoring that solution to the needs of the client. And so if you are a small development shop and you have one product and you have very close customer feedback and you're really good at pivoting quickly, you might not even need the PI planning event. Um, but in some cases you might say, you know, our, our teams, our stakeholders benefit from knowing like what's coming up in the future. Um, to Elizabeth's point earlier, like marketing might want to know like, okay, what publishing material do we need to get in place? What's coming up? So having some of that forecasting and some of that road mapping that Scrum doesn't really touch on very much, um, but, but SAFE does, that can be beneficial to the other elements in your organization. So I think kind of along those lines, I'm going to bring up that crazy picture we just talked about. Um, can you tell me more about like the different levels of safe? Cause I think in this conversation, we might be talking about this essential piece, right? Yeah. What, that, what does that actually mean? Like what's essential and what are the other levels as we go through? Yeah. So this essential safe, um, there's kind of two layers to this right now that you're looking at um, right below that design thinking. If you draw like another horizontal line, that's kind of the team area and it's very team focused. So we talk about Scrum, like it calls out Scrum as being the foundation of the team. So it borrows principles from Scrum and XP, potentially Kanban, depending on the makeup of your team and the makeup of your work. Um, and so this level of safe, essential safe, is very team focused, um, but scaled across multiple teams. 
And then they've got the PI planning event in there as well. So we're kind of tying in how we run our teams, how we run our continuous delivery pipeline, excuse me, and uh, how we do PI planning events and how we, as a, as a train, we call them the agile release train, a team of teams. Um, how do we look back and how do we improve our train and not just our teams? Like we have retrospectives at the team level, sure, but as an entire train, how do we how do we get better and improve the way that we interact with each other and with the business? And does that change a lot once you go to that large solution? So just like you think about a team, you have a team of teams, so you're scaling out your team level. Okay. Um, as you get more trains, then you might start looking at your large solution safe. So it's still trains that are aligned around uh, similar value streams. And so it's how do you operate these large teams of teams together in a unified way, moving towards a common goal. So it's like the next layer and it scales out the, the framework itself. I know we, we keep kind of throwing around some of the, the safe terms and things like that, like a train. Can, can we talk just a second as we're like right here talking about the train and Brittany smiling? Cause I don't know, maybe this is the first time she's ever heard this. Like, can you cross, uh, like, can one user in that train be on other trains? Like, what does a train actually mean for us? And no, we're not, like, in a subway. Like, what, what are we talking about, right? Yeah, can you, can you jump the tracks? Is that yeah. a thing you can do? <laughs> uh, yeah, so trains frequently are aligned around value streams. And so a user, as they use your product or your organization's suite of products, um, it's, very, it's very specific to your organization as to how you're – users are going to interact with the trains. So the trains, um, there's two different value streams. You've got uh, the value streams that are your, the way that you have a customer that you're acquiring a customer and delivering through the process. Um, so they, they call it the concept of cash value stream. So um, how do you bring a user in and what process do they go through? And then eventually that results in a payment of some sort. And that's, that's one type of value stream that an organization can have. But then the value streams that we're talking about from the IT side support those, they support the systems that build those value streams out. So the agile release trains are generally around those um, operational value, or the agile release trains are organized around those operational value streams to help support those systems. So a user will cross across um, the, the products and systems that multiple agile release trains are going to build uh, as you go through it. And how, how in tune is like a, a developer within one of those trains? Do they understand all the trains? Are they getting updates from all the trains? Or is there like, I think I've heard the term scrum of scrums. Is, is that a thing? What does that mean to us? Yeah, so the scrum of scrums is more focused around teams within a train. So a developer will have a lot of exposure to the work that other teams on their agile release train uh, are working on. So they do PI planning with that, with all the other teams. So that's um, within one single agile release train. Uh, as we get up into the large solution safe, there's less visibility in like the day-to-day, but we do have, um, we, we try to pull information rather than push it. So there's less of a focus on sending out reports and um, sending out things to people that they may or may not read. And so we make inf- information available. So as a developer, you might want to know about what's going on on a different train, on a different team, and you should have access to that. You can look at another team's board and see what are they working on over here. And that way, uh, it, Im- it improves our alignment across the entire organization. So as a developer, if I'm working in one space and it's touching some of the infrastructure, I should be able to jump into another team's board that also is working on that infrastructure in a similar space. And they might be on a different team or a different agile release train. 
um, or anywhere in the organization and see what are you guys working on that we might be colliding on. So, so that should be visible. It might not necessarily be pushed down to everybody, but it should be available. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then is there, I'm not used to portfolio in full. Is there a large difference again at portfolio level? I'll let Elizabeth speak to the portfolio level. <laughs> okay. That's more, more. <laughs> I was going to also just add in regards to large solution, because having an example sometimes helps cement that one because it's a little bit unique. But think of a hardware company or like Motorola, right, where you have hardware, firmware, software, um, maybe something with Bluetooth technology. Those are all probably separate trains delivering to the same value. So that's a large solution. And a lot of times there's outside vendors and suppliers that are also part of that, which is what, again, falls into that large solution um, where the program level, portfolio level, yeah, portfolio level sits above. Um, that's really like where the enterprise is deciding on what their focus is going to be for the year. What are the, they may think of it as epics, they may think of it as strategic initiatives. And that's also where funding comes into play. And that's where we really focus on helping organizations move away from funding projects, but actually funding the product and funding the value stream so that you're not having all these start-stop segments within the funding, which also can impact how um, these initiatives are resourced. Um, so portfolio, think of it as the overarching how an organization or corporation is going to plan their work for the next year, maybe upwards of three years, uh, to set the teams up to break out which trains are going to get which epics, then features, and then down to the user stories. And then full safe is that kind of just in that really that yeah that shows you all of them all yep. levels and that's really if you have an extremely large organization that also is benefiting from the large solution trains as well as possibly some non-large solution train setups. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so I think we we talked through kind of the very beginning and, and agile, and then we went to Scrum, and then it feels like we maybe quickly went through safe and got really high level. Um, if we can jump back there, there's specific roles that exist within, um, within safe. Can we, can we break those down and chat about those in a second? Sure. So where would you like to start? Yeah, I, I think so. There's a release train engineer, right? What did they mm -hmm. do? Yeah, so the release train engineer, RTE, is basically the scrum master for the entire agile release train. So just like a scrum master on a team, uh, they're focused on removing blockers so that the team can focus on getting work done. So anytime something comes up that prevents them from getting work done, they kick that to the scrum master. The scrum master goes after it, and the team continues working on whatever it is they need to be working on. In a similar way, the RTE is looking at what's getting in the way of the teams on a larger scale, and what blockers can we remove from their space. They also do, uh, like the Scrum Master facilitates team-level events, the RTE facilitates your PI planning event, your inspect and adapt event, which is basically the train-level retrospective. Uh, they're forming connections throughout the organization as well so that um, we can get those feedback cycles quicker. So if something's prohibiting a team from uh, moving forward, we want the RTE to leverage already existing relationships so we can go to whoever we need to go to to get answers to help unblock that team. So. Uh, they bring the teams together. Um, you talked about Scrum of Scrums earlier. That's usually facilitated by the RTE as well, making sure that routinely, instead of having a daily stand-up across the whole train, we've got something that happens still on a cadence, not every day. It could be twice a week, once a week. It's really dependent on the teams and the train uh, to figure out what makes sense. 
but facilitating those checkpoints and saying, what are we working on? Are we still moving in the same direction? We came out of our PI planning event with a plan for the next quarter uh, or five iterations, whatever it is. How are we tracking to that? Are there things getting in our way? Do we have work coming in that's uh, higher priority that we weren't anticipating we need to pivot? So the RTE facilitates all those different conversations. Cool. And then... So there's a couple more, there's, there's more roles here and I'll keep going and hopefully uh, I, I'm not badgering you too much to break these down. So, so the next one is system architect. Um, I think at some point, I believe I'm actually a system architect and you can see how unfamiliar I am with SAFE. How, how does that look? What am I yeah. supposed to do? Yeah, so the system architect is kind of looking at, uh, instead of just the work that a single team is doing, is how are we building a system that's that's larger than one team's capacity to manage? And so are we making sure that we're aligned in our infrastructure choices? Um, do we have operations involved that need to be uh, where they need to be? And are we making sure that we're, we have a long-term vision for our architecture? Are we managing our architectural runway and making sure that we're building up um, enablers that aren't getting in the way of teams doing development. So if we're saying that um, we need some uh, set of servers spun up, is the are we making sure that those are done ahead of time and that that's called out as a dependency and that's being planned appropriately so we're not getting in the team's way so that they, they can use it when they need to. Okay. And then product manager? So the product manager, just like on a scrum team, you've got a product owner who represents the users and the business. Uh, in SAFE, we kind of take some of that business aspect and shift that up to a product manager, which is then it's sort of like the product owner for the Agile release train. So they're maintaining those business relationships. And they're understanding the priorities of the business, um, understanding the needs of the stakeholders and the users. And so they're also in charge of prioritizing the different features that are delivered to the teams to break down into stories. And so they're helping to make sure that those are they have adequate definition, that they have adequate acceptance criteria so that the teams can take those and run an implementation against those features. Cool. Um, and I think we talked a little bit more about these other two, but the Scrum Master is kind of the next one. And then we talked through kind of what that entails. And then Product Owner, um, it, you, you just talked a little bit about that, but um, essentially they, they own the actual product and the success of it, right? Um, and then there's the, the whole Agile team that kind of sits under that. So cross-functional developers, QA, and um, this always comes up. And I'm curious about, you know, maybe we'll see you can talk about it, but where does design fit into this whole, like, thought process? Um, they're part of a team, I assume, but is it, like, the beginning? Um, is it a different PI planning phase? What does, what does this design do and where do they fit in? This is Brittany, like, open your ears up because this part's for you, I think. <laughs> um, it does depend. We've tried it multiple ways, but it also depends on the scale of the engagement and what product they're trying to deliver. What we've seen work best with especially a robust design focus within an engagement is that there is a designer on each Agile team. And they're working usually um, also in a shared service type capacity working ahead with wireframes for the, what's gonna tie into the backlog, but then broken off across individual Agile teams as they function throughout a PI by sprint. Now, sometimes that becomes too robust and unnecessary. There's not enough work maybe for that designer to um, stay fulfilled during that sprint. So another approach is stripping away maybe the team level involvement for the day-to-day -day and having them focus on that shared service angle where they sit more at that program with the RTE. 
and their whole job is to keep working ahead of the agile teams to make sure that they are um, their their backlog, their user stories are have sufficient wireframing designs laid out so the team can move forward. A lot of times, depending on if they're at the shared service or at the agile team level themselves, they may have a heavy hand in the QA portion too as a good quality check towards the end. So just wireframes, so you have like just the layout. Do they use design systems usually? Well, it, they have used design systems, but one thing where it's worked by doing the wireframes is if they have the... Um, uh, forgetting exactly what it's called from a design perspective, but basically their playbook of all the right colors, beveling, what pixel do you have around the buttons, and that's all stored and accessible for the developers to have. So even though they see it in a wireframe, they can easily find from this playbook, how, okay. what does that translate into for their development? Gotcha. Yeah, like the style guide or something. Thank yeah, you, style yeah, guide. style guide. I was like, I couldn't, it was right there. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Yeah, that's your typography, your colors, all that fun stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And there's different ways because a lot of times when you talk about safe, there's some pushback from design because there's not a lot of material on design specifically uh, within the state framework. But if you dig into any of the specific implementation roles, there's not usually a ton of information. Like there's not a lot of content on how do you do development work in the safe framework because safe isn't specifically for IT development. It kind of grew out of that. Um but you can use safe in a variety of different contexts. So they're, they're even working on getting rid of the word development from a lot of the material. And so it used to be development teams and now they're agile teams because we're seeing success in other areas, not just software development. So when it comes to design, um, a lot of the times, some of the pushback that we get is, well, we don't want designs to be specific to each team and have a designer on each team that now they're designing things and when you go into this part of the application, it looks completely different from this other part of the application. So how do we, we're not necessarily saying like the big design up front, but how do we maintain that consistency? And so SAFE uh, introduces the idea of communities of practice. And it's good for any role, not just design, but have the like-minded people, have your designers get together on a regular basis, have your quality assurance analysts uh, get together, have your developers get together and say, what are our standards? What are our best practices? Um, how do we enforce those things and, and develop that, those tools that then they bring back to their teams to provide that alignment and, and that consistency across the different teams? So I think something caught my ear a little bit there. Um, just from a front-end web developer like myself, I, I heard like SAFE is a, a framework. And the only thing I can equate that to is like JavaScript is the language. Angular is a framework. React is a framework. So you can kind of use the parts and pieces that you need and, and bend it to how you want it to. But at the end of the day, the, the work or the, the product is what actually matters. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like you'll hear some of the criticisms about SAFE is that it's too prescriptive, it's too heavy handed, um, and it, it's, it doesn't fit all organizations. But that's true of every framework that you have. You're not gonna use every piece in every situation but you've got these tools in your toolbox to solve specific problems. And in true agile fashion, safe doesn't trump agile. If something isn't working right, then we can pivot. We can adjust that. If your daily standups for whatever reason aren't working right, there's a space within the framework to say, why aren't they working right? Can we fix that or address that? Or do we say, let's adjust them. Maybe daily is, is too much. Maybe we've got 
uh, team members that are only available part-time. And so maybe daily is too much time for us to, to sync up because we're not working every day together. So uh, yeah, that's, that's well said, you know, kind of keeping that agile aspect to all of this. <laughs> that's yeah. the important part. Awesome. Well, I, we've been talking for like 45 minutes straight and I love the conversation, but I think I'm going to have to break it off there and you guys are just going to have to come back on. I hope that's okay. <laughs> part two. Part awesome. two. So uh, at this time, we're going to jump into what we love to call our perfect fix. Um, and Elizabeth, you are first on the list. Your pick. Well, I feel like you gave me a great segue because you said how it's a framework and you pick the pieces and parts that work well for you. So this book, oh, reading it right now as part of our Agile Book Club, gives you actual oh, true oh, stories. Oh, totally missed it. Sorry. You what? Oh, I know. I pulled it up again. Oh, I missed it. There we go. Sweet. (laughs) Yes. Um, But it's really good. It's got factual stories of how other organizations and consultants have worked with them through their safe implementation and tweaks that they've made. So it really honors that this is a framework and it does not have to be prescriptive. And it gives you different insights to how you could better utilize sprint planning or how you could better utilize a quick launch into a safe transformation. Um, It's just good to hear other perspectives as always. That's how we grow, right? Um, It's a quick read, even though it's super thick, it's a, it's a quick read. I think that's just because you're a fast reader. I don't know. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Brett, you are up next with extreme ownership. Yeah, this this book is near and dear to my heart. Um, it's not really like agile or state specific in any way, but uh, it just kind of talks about like I see the tie-ins to an autonomous team and saying uh, every problem that I'm experiencing right now, I I have some degree of control or influence over that, and what is that, and how can I act on it? And so it's it's getting away from pointing fingers at other people and saying like, well, this was kind of your fault, and saying regardless of whose fault it is. Uh, it's my responsibility to make things better and improve things and being and taking actionable steps to do that. And so it's written from uh, it's a former two former Navy SEALs. And so every chapter is like they talk about a war story, which I like those. A lot of people don't. So you can skip over that if you don't like it. But then they talk about uh, a concept or a principle around that ownership. And then they talk about they illustrate it from a business context. So um, they also have a business consulting agency now. So it's like war story, principle, business context. And so it's neat to kind of go through those different elements and, and follow those. Do, do they say work the problem a lot? They don't say work the problem. Oh, okay. I used to sit next to a, a SEAL in my first job, and he would always say, just work the problem. That's what we did in SEALs, just work the problem. I was like, okay. Yeah, no, they have a principle called default aggressive, where – by default, you take action, which is pretty much, I mean, that's the agile way is let's not sit and ponder and plan and think about what might be and come up with a perfect plan and then take a step. It's by default, we're going to take a step and see how that goes. And then that'll direct our next step. And so the default aggressive mentality is just let's start going and then refine as we go along. Cool. Um, I think Brittany tricked me and she swapped, she swapped out her original pick. I did. I threw you for a loop. You're, you're, you're up next. And I think your first one is web developer monthly. 
Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and talk about that one first. Yeah, this is a monthly newsletter that uh, Zero to Mastery puts out, but I always learn something pretty much every month reading that. So it's really um, informative. It's got a lot of JavaScript, a lot of React stuff in it, but uh, it covers all areas of front-end web development. There's also one for Python and machine learning if you're more into that side of things. I feel like I know someone that that uh, is an author out here. Is is that someone you know too? Who is that? Aren't you an author on ZTM? Oh, um, I don't know if I have anything on ZTM actually. I I have a workshop on ZTM. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm no. You're, you're second. Pick. You're trying to plug me, but <laughs> I tried. I tried so hard. I'm not an author yet. Um. So the the second pick, which is a. Pick. I, I don't know how I've missed because this is a fantastic book, The Unicorn Project. Tell me yeah, about it. As we were talking, I just started thinking, I just read it like a few months ago and I started thinking like, oh, that reminds me of that book that I read. And so then I just switched up my pick on you because it's such a great book. It kind of goes over some of these methodologies, but more in like a realistic setting. And so it takes you through a company and how all the employees are unhappy and then how they kind of transition that into like a better work environment. It's a really yeah. cool book. The the first book in that series, the Phoenix Project, was I mean that was a smash hit. Um, that was so good. Yeah, I read that one a couple times. The Phoenix. I didn't know it was a series. Uh, yeah, he's he's a great author. Um, I'm writing that down. Kim is how you pronounce it. Um, fantastic on both those books. Um, Agreed. So my my pick is something totally anti-safe, and I went with. <laughs> this shape up book by Basecamp. So yeah, it's, it's, I say anti-safe, but it's, it's very similar. Um, it's a really cool read. I have not made my way all the way through it. Um, it's just a different aspect to, um, like product management and it just breaks down some really simple items. And this is what Basecamp uses. Um, which if you haven't heard of Basecamp, check it out. It's really cool too. Okay. Thank you all so much. I really, really appreciate your time. We're going to have to have you on again. We have like uh, another like half a list of things we didn't make it through. Uh, just some of those interpersonal skills that I want to get back to for like developers and designers and, you know, how to become those things if you're just getting started. So definitely have you both back. Really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Alex. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for joining. We're supposed to crazy wave.